This podcast is brought to you by MedCloud. Get connected, cyber safe. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Vanguard podcast. Today's guest is Don Randall, MBE, who is an internationally renowned and respected senior security expert with over 50 years experience in the security industry at local, national and international levels. Don is a former senior police officer specializing in fraud, counterterrorism, and over 20 plus years experience in the private sector in investment banking, central banking, and private consultancy. Don is now CEO of his own consultancy practice where he specializes in security advice on fraud, money laundering, cybercrime, along with business continuity and emergency response procedures for those investment companies. Don, Thanks for joining us and welcome to the Vanguard podcast. It's my pleasure, Scott. Good to be here with you. Great. Thanks. Don, you know, the whole idea of this podcast is speaking to inspiring and interesting individuals that I would like to sit down and spend half a day with learning about their stories. What I'd love to do right now is go back to 1967 and even before that and just walk us through your upbringing, your schooling, and then the decision in 67 to join the City of London Police Force and what inspired you to do that. I'm a, I'm a war baby, as they say, born 1950. Basically, um, uh, a single parent family. I, my father left when I was very young, and uh, my stepfather died equally when I was modest, moderately young. Basic secondary modern schooling education, schooling back in the 60s, where I think it was a bit different, definitely different from what it is today. Brought up uh, a fantastic mother, taught me, you know, I often quote my mum, in fact, when I've given presentations across the world, I always reference my mum because she fundamentally taught the difference between right and wrong and the, and the values of life in a very simple way. Joy, I was a, I was a scout. Everything I've tried to do, if you ask me to reflect, I, um, I've tried to do it to the best of my ability. And my mum always told me that. She said, you know, different people have different skills, different abilities, different qualities. As long as you give your best and do your best, then you can be proud of what you've done. Also, in, when I was 16, secondary modern school, they were just beginning to introduce the concept of, you know, career monitoring, career where you're going to go. But there was nothing substantial in place. And two of my scoutmasters were policemen. One was a metropolitan policeman and one was a city of London policeman, albeit the metropolitan policeman was a former city of London policeman. And my brother-in-law, who since passed away, was a member of the post office. So... The obvious route for me to go I mean, 1967, the early part of 1967, I was, I was 17 in December, I applied for the post office, I applied for the Metropolitan Police Cadets, and I applied for the City of London Police Cadets. I, I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, the Met is a massive system, the City of London Police is a smaller system, but just to put it in context, um, the City of London Police Cadets replied, and I got through all of my initial processes of uh, acceptance before I even received the Metropolitan Police information pack. That was no fault it's just a big machine. Sorry, Scott. I was just saying that's interesting because a lot of listeners may not know that there actually is a Met Police and a City of London Police. Oh, yeah, the City of London Police basically, and we'll talk about it, because right? that's why I joined, is the one square mile theoretically goes from Tower of London down to the Law Courts, up north of Fleet Street, across the Smithfield Market, then across back east to what was Spitalfields Market. Um, right bordered by the south by Southwark, on the on the east by Tower Hamlets, on the north by Islington and Camden, and on the west by um, Bloomsbury. But, uh, yeah, it's a case of the post office, and yeah, you remember silly things. I remember looking over the paper, and the, but the one thing that went through my mind, I'm a post office engineer, was like, 
they measured you for your overalls, you know, they, they, in anticipation of success, you had an overall. And one of my decisions not to join the post office because I was frightened that these overalls were going to be too, too, too small for me, as silly as that may sound. <laughs> anyway, I joined yeah. the City of London Police Cadets in 1967 at uh, what was then the headquarters, 26 Old Jury. I had a fantastic two years. The, the one thing the City of London Police Cadets did, they, they didn't want you to be a quasi-policeman. They wanted you to educate you and mature you. In fact, I, I left secondary modern school with one O level, which was actually geography, and I ended up in the cadets doing um, part-time education. I got five more O levels, had a fantastic career, you know, a fantastic time. But the, the interesting thing, the City of London Police height at that time, Scott was five foot eleven, and I joined at five foot nine and a half. Yeah? Right. And but by the time I was just approaching nineteen, I was five foot ten and three quarters. <laughs> and I remember the assistant commissioner saying to me at the time, "Well, don't worry, Mister Randall. If you don't make the extra quarter of an inch, I'm sure the Metropolitan Police will take you." And I thought, "Hang on, I've just done two years." Anyway, <laughs> I go for my interview, and I remember Jock, uh, Jock the sergeant, and it was remember they used to put a bar on your head to measure you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he turned away and he said, "You got to be five eleven, Doc." So I nudged the bar up just a quarter of an inch, and he went five eleven. Yeah, perfect. From there, you went in to see the two superintendents. There was a wonderful man called uh, Leggett. And we went in and said, Mr. Randall, congratulations. I do know you. You've worked here in Old Jury and great cadetship. And we really look forward to you joining the force, et cetera. Thank you very much, sir. And I went to walk out. Just as I'm opening the door, he said, um, excuse me, one thing. I turned around and said, yes, sir. He says, you're the shortest five foot 11 I've ever seen in my life, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> That's but I joined the city police primarily because they responded first. I was frightened of my shortened overalls in the post office and the Metropolitan Police missed their opportunity or I missed their opportunity. I may just jump in there for a minute. One thing that I've never had an issue with is, is overalls being too small for me. <laughs> they're, they're normally too big. So, And I would never have got in the city of London Police for being 5'11 because that's never going to happen. But one thing that really resonates with me, Don, and I think it resonates with me, it'll resonate with the listeners because most of the, pe- the successful people that we've had on this podcast have always mentioned two things. One is mentors. I mean, I still have mentors now and I'm, I'm, you know, approaching my 50th year, but mentors is a big thing. And it sounds like it was a big thing for you as well. But the other thing that stood out for me was the importance of that cadetship teaching you those life skills. Would that be fair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you want to go canoeing a, a two-seater kayak in a swimming pool in North London in minus four degrees, <laughs> and you fell in every five minutes. And, you, you know, health and safety rules were not exactly applicable in those days. And you're so cold, you can't get your shirt off, you know. And, you, yeah. you, you know, it's not SAS training, but it is definitely mature training. And and that, that sort of inter-rivalry and the ability to succeed, you know, yes, it is. The mentor in my, in early days, two mentors were John Ovenall, who was a scoutmaster with me, and Mickey Munn, yeah. who was a scoutmaster with me. And they were my early mentors. And then throughout my career, I've, I've had various others. And then, of course, there comes a time when the situation reverses and you become the mentor Absolutely. and the mentee. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, actually. And, and and that's a really good segue into what we'll speak about a little bit later and, and talking about what you see in mentoring and the skills that you've learned during those formative years, but also the, the mentorships that you've had with those individuals you just mentioned and how you're, or how you brought that into your later career and, and then into your consultancy. That'd be really good to speak about. So from there, City of London, you graduate out of from the cadetship into becoming what I would assume is a constable and then going through the career. Can you talk us through the career from there? you know, through to when you became Detective Chief Inspector and, and that career journey. 
I think for for our listeners and our, our friends listening in, that the remember when I when I joined British policing in December 1969, you know, in those days there were a hundred definitions you had to learn. Yeah. Uh, one of which was a, the definition of a peddler, uh, infanticide, definition of a constable, and again that was it. You know, we lived in a dormitory apart from the, the training. We had to make bed packs each morning. We were inspected. You lived in a dormitory of six of us. And the bed packs, if the bed packs weren't perfect, I mean, it's a bit, a bit like a military discipline. There was a little quasi-military influence there. Yep. I also remember my helmet didn't fit. It was like a pimple on my head. It was a 12-week course. And it was only about sort of six weeks in, I got a replacement helmet that actually fitted, you know. And Brilliant. I also remember when I, when, when I joined in December 69 and probably went out on my first patrol back in like February 70. We didn't have radios. Radios, they were just being pioneered then. So when you go through the city of London, there's about seven boxes left now. You see these little blue boxes with little amber lights on. So when you were on patrol, if something happened, you used to walk past these boxes and, and then you pick the phone up and go to control. It's just the way you really make our, our colleagues laugh on this. You know, the early pie radios, the earpiece was a plastic-like um, little piece on your shoulder that you held to your ear. And you had to press the pie phone and the area would pop out. It used to pop up your nose. <laughs> but it was pretty We progressed. Um, and I had a really good time. I mean, following my mum's philosophy of just do your best and, you know, be best of Transitional time, if you think about policing back in the early, sorry, the late 60s, early 70s. So, yes, I walked the streets as a constable. I was very much into motorcycling at that time. And my detective colleagues were always always criticised with this. I actually went on, I rode the motorbikes in the city police for a couple of years. And the reason I did it, not because I want to be a traffic cop, but I actually want to be first on scene at all the incidents, whether they be crime incidents, maybe alarm incidents, whether they be accidents or whatever. And in fact, my good friend, my partner was Brian Reno, and we were both first on scene at the Tower of London bombing. And actually, we were just about to book off duty. The call came out. We were first on scene and, and rescued many of those injured. And sadly, the one lady who died, Dorothy Houseman, then I passed my sergeant exam. I didn't pass first time. I was a bit slow. I didn't quite put the effort in. I got sergeant. I got made sergeant. I went into the process office. And uh, again, following mum's philosophy, I did my best as I could. And then there was a point in time when the, uh, the then commissioner, Peter Marshall, said to me, I want you to go and become a detective sergeant. <laughs> this was a big transition. And I went, okay. And it was at a time when the force was under a degree of um, scrutiny for alleged corrupt activities. And, and one of the beliefs from senior management, Robert Mark was the commissioner of the Met, Peter was commissioner of the city, was to change the way that the, the force worked. And there were maybe two of us, possibly three, were moved from uniform into detective, which was a massive learning curve, but a good learning curve. So I was uh, previously to be a detective sergeant at Snow Hill. And then a couple of years later, got made detective inspector and went into the fraud investigation world. One of the things, probably the most pivotal time, Scott, in policing, and I think in one of our conversations you mentioned the craze, um, the, the craze had already been investigated. It was a metropolitan police investigation, but I was around during that um, organised time era. There were the craze of North London and allegedly the Richardsons of South London. If we get time, I'll tell you a story about the latter. But I popped in for my, my career from inspector to superintendent, I was a detective inspector in the fraud squad. I then really wanted to be on the regional crime squad, the Sweeney. <laughs> it really was the thing that everybody aspired to. Mm -hmm. And I remember the then commissioner, Owen Kelly, and I had a chat and he said, Don, I know you want to go out in the regional crime squad, but there was no softness in those days, Scott. It was like, but you're not going. So would you accept the promotion to detective chief inspector and stay in fraud? And I went, absolutely. So I was the detective inspector in the fraud. 
I then went back into uniform at Snow Hill, then went back to communications, and then my promotion board for superintendent, and I, I got made detective superintendent in a non-conceded way. I was the youngest ever detective superintendent, not fast-tracked in the City of London Police at that time, at 38. And the then assistant commissioner called me up and uh, said, you're going back to fraud? And I said, okay, that's fine. And I said, in terms of reference, he said, change it. It's okay. And, and if I just do this in a collective sense, at that time, historically, fraud had been very compartmentalized. You had experts in shipping, experts in banking, experts in retail, experts in insurance. But there was no collective way of doing it. And what we did between 1988 to 1993 was to turn the fraud squad into more like a, a normal reactive regional crime squad but dealing with fraud. So all of the detectives were omnicompetent. They could deal with anything that came through the door and their specialisms came as a secondary or third tier element. And we, we really had some fantastic times. And then um, I went back into uniform in the spring of 93. Interestingly, during that time in 88, I came across a man called Ted Ferrace, who was an investigator with JP Morgan at that time and who I learned a lot from. Yep. There's a significance there. Back in 93, I actually went to Superintendent Ops, which had everything, you know, everything operational, firearms, traffic, horses, dogs, everything operational. And that was 10 days before the St. Mary Axe bomb, where you know, sadly, 30 plus people died. And then a year later in uh, 94, course was the Bishopsgate bomb where I was the it was a Saturday morning bomb went off at 1024 I always said why was I there on a Saturday morning you know in my office uh, in my jeans and t-shirt was it because I was so dedicated I went in on a Saturday or was it because I was so far behind with my work that I had to catch up <laughs> and I've never really given the real answer but I was there before the bomb went off when uh, Anne Reese, who's sadly no longer with us, came down and said, sir, we've got a problem. Yeah. No, no, I said, I, I know we've got a problem. He said, no, sir, we have got the problem. Went upstairs, and as you know, I think uh, the, the Bishopsgate bomb is seen as, you know, we couldn't stop it. Yeah. But it, was, it is seen in that 45 minutes between alerting and igniting as a, a classic way of dealing with a mobile improvised explosive device and still quoted. It's where the, the 200 meter, the 400 meter cordons came from. And yeah. We co wrote the books, Bomb Protecting People and Property. That's really my, my, my short 25 years in British policing which then led to my next career change, if you'd like me to talk about that. Yeah, so it's a really good segue into it because, you know, there's there's lots of elements there talking about the fraud squad and getting into the crime squad and so forth. And I guess learning more about, you know, you, you started seeing how fraud and crime and money laundering started happening in the, the 80s and 90s and 2000s and how's that changed? What was the catch for you to, to make that pivot? Because it is a pivot going from the police force into banking, albeit looking out for those crimes in that world. Was that something that went, yeah, this really interests me. I think I can make a difference. Therefore, after meeting your, your colleague, Ted, and joining JP Morgan, I'm sure you'll talk us through that. Was that the pivot to say, you know what? I'm going to get out of the police force now. I can see a, a, a more of a role for me in hunting down individuals that are frauding banks, businesses, and so forth. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question with a series of answers, but probably three principal answers, Scott. Mm -hmm. MedCloud. Get connected. Cyber safe is our mantra. From tailored, managed security solutions to our next-generation cloud platform, MetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. 
You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at metcloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. The first off was you've got to think back in 1995. You know, if you look in the BBC archives, you'll see a picture of me on BBC television launching the, the Computer Misuse Act back in 1990. And the irony of that was we didn't have any computers. Yeah. Yeah, we had a fantastic team, but we were only, as I was leaving, were we introducing computers into the policing of, of this country. As the head of the operational side of the fraud squad, we'd launched this Computer Misuse Act without any computers. I also said, you know, that if you go back in history, even ATM fraud was technically a computer fraud because yes. you were using technology to commit crime. Yeah. And the expression I used to use, Scott, was that, you know, if I'm a pickpocket, yeah, I come up and I steal your wallet. If I'm a fraudster, I engage you in conversation and somehow induce you to give me the contents of your wallet in verbal or written exchanges with no physical activity at all other than receiving the stuff. So yeah. if you keep a, a simplistic view of fraud to that, extent. The second one was that time, 1995, British policing was moving towards a very academic period of its senior management life. And if you look at the appointments between 95 and probably 2000, you wouldn't get a chief officer position unless you'd got a degree and indeed a master's degree. I'm not saying that was a soul, but it became a significant factor in the top of the house. So I, I'm pretty confident I'd get a degree if I wanted to. And in, in fact, I've proven that in later life. But there are two times in leaving British policing back then contractually. One is 30 years. That's your contractual period where your, your pension that you've contributed all kicks in. One is 25 years. And there's another one which is 26 and a half years where people get injured and can't continue their journey. And I took a decision. Ted Ferrace, who I'd met, had been plaguing me to join JP Morgan. And five years, I mean, since about 1993, I think, 92, something like that. And I kept saying, no, 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 I want to be a policeman. And then I guess you use the word segue. The segue for me was, you know, my destiny was never to be a chief officer because at that time I would, I would have been prohibited by virtue of the lack of academic qualifications. You know, so I might have got three out of the 43 positions. The odds were not good. And Ted was chasing me. And um, so, I went, okay, I'll do this. And I always remember it, Scott, the 16th of January, 1995. I'm walking down Victorian Bankman towards 60 uh, Victorian Bankman, which is the old city London school for boys building, almost like a, a youngster going to school with his little pencil case and book. And I'm thinking, what have I done? <laughs> there was no going back in those days, Scott. You know, they, once you're gone, you're gone. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought, it my mind that I might not like the job or they may not like me. And I was effectively taken over from someone. It was a bit of a rough three months. And I remember ringing Ted up. You talk about mentoring earlier. I rang Ted up one night. I said, Ted, you know, I'm really sorry. I can live with the concert, but I just, this is not for me. You know, I'm not saying I'm the best thing on since sliced bread, but my first assignment by the current incumbent at that time was to, to go and do a, a crime prevention survey of the car park of their building in Stratford, you know. And I and Ted, Ted said to me, he said, look, just hang on, hang on. There is a plan. There is a roadmap. I waited five years for you to come. Yes. We didn't take anybody else. Just give it time, please. 
I've always believed, Scott, that the partnership and marriage between public and private sector law enforcement is the only way forward. Sure. And therefore, moving into the private sector with an institution like JP Morgan, as it was then and still is now with its combined role with Chase, was an opportunity to, to bond those two elements, the 25-year policing career into a pretty powerful position within JP Morgan, which ended up with me having responsibility for everything outside of America, which employee members was about 56,000 in 36 offices, the whole of Europe, uh, the continent of Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, India, Australasia, and Asia Pacific. So that's that was a geographic wow. spread of responsibility, which in mentoring terms, Ted just said, and that's the one difference, Scott, yeah? in the private sector, no one tells you what to do. You yeah. create your own requirements. Whereas in policing, a lot of policing back in the early 90s was reactive. Today, I think it's very proactive. But back then, it was very reactive. And the proactive was the lesser part. Whereas you go into the private sector, and you create what you want to create. And, and I had a fantastic 25 years with the city police and a fantastic 14 years with JP Morgan, where I went from being almost starting again as an associate up to being a, a managing director with that responsibility I've just described, and partnering. And there are certain initiatives that we did between public and private and really internationally brought the private sector close to policing. It wasn't easy because people are, people are thinking, oh, why is Randall doing this? Is he doing it just to make sure he gets a better bonus or anything? Yeah, all the normal, all the normal, you know, low life criticisms that you get. But you know, the intention was, hey, let's make this a better place. Let's go back to my mum again and say, yeah. just do what you do well as best you can, and make the place safe. I, I love that. Which brings us to the next part of the career, and and I, I, the final part of your commercial career before going out on your own, and that was becoming the first chief or director of security and then chief information security officer so for uh, for the Bank of England. How did that come about after, you know, 13 years at JP Morgan? Okay. Um, the bank had approached me, I think about 2005, to see if um, if I would consider to join them. And I went through an interview process. I, I remember my interview process with a man called John Footman. And interestingly enough, Andrew Bailey, who is now the current the governor of the bank, yep. and Andrew was chief cashier then. And I just, I hadn't finished everything I wanted to do at JP Morgan. And, and if I'm brutally honest, I don't think the bank was quite ready for me and I wasn't quite ready for them. So I turned the job down in, I think, 2005. In 2007, I had a heart attack and um, it's all okay. And I have five stents now and, you know, they haven't gone rusty in the last 20 years. <laughs> um, you, you can't keep up the pace, you know, no matter how resilient and strong you are. You know, the pace of JP Morgan is such, it's, you know, you, they pay you well, you do a hard job, mum's philosophy. And so I pretty much decided to, to leave um, because I just, you know, it was too demanding apropos my, my illness. Mm -hmm. the, bank, uh, the bank came back to me. I remember I was actually in Florence in Italy with the then assistant commissioner of the Met, Peter Clark. And I got a call from Mr. Fulton's secretary saying, John would like to have a word with you. I said, okay. So I went in and John said, We've had a few changes. You know, we'd like you to reconsider. I went, okay. And I said, well, I've had the heart attack. He said, yeah, the bank, we, we've got things we want you to do at the bank, but just reconsider. And the interesting thing, which is I find quite funny, Scott, we had the same interview panel again. And uh, I remember John saying to me, he said, well, anything changed? I said, I've had a heart attack. And I'd also got an MBE. And um, he went, okay. But we went through it anyway. They offered me a job and they, they didn't want us to change. And we, we changed because it was time for change. And the bank needed to move on. 
And then when Mark Carney arrived in um, the summer of 12, Mark did a couple of things. And one of those was to create the first information security division at the Bank of England and the CISO role. I call it a CISO, people call it CISO. And so what uh, Mark, through Charlotte Hogg, who was the first ever COO, asked me to do, and I was 63 then, so maybe 62 and a half, 63, um, was to create the information security division. And additionally, uh, in, if, you're, if our listeners look up CBEST, C-B-E-S-T, it's an acronym with no meaning. But CBEST is effectively the, the mechanism where the bank, in line with government, um, calls annual information technology uh, examinations of the 24 supervised banks and some building societies and some insurance companies. In that two years, we built the Information Security Division. At that time, 27 people, uh, fully loaded, fully working, fully operational, £3.2 million budget, and became, I think, a, a recognised global model within central banking for a division. And, um, you know, built it from scratch in two years. And then at 65, my intention was to retire from the bank. Um, I stayed on for an extra year as an ambassador, cyber ambassador, uh, amazing time, a, a wonderful institution to work for, progressive, keeps all its history, so valuable to the, the running of this country. And I, I remember when I joined there, Scott, Mervyn was governor and I got to meet him on the second day and uh, he and Mark, a different character, and Mervyn called me in and shook my hand and said, we're so pleased to see you, Don. Yeah, that's the Bank of England where I was between August 2008 through to um, 2016. Right. Yeah, when when we've spoken and we've spoken a few times now, the, the way you speak about the the Bank of England and that institution is is actually fantastic because it gets a lot of slack and, and and a lot of stick in the in the press and so forth. And I love hearing you know your passion for that organisation and just the really good feeling you have about the bank. And it's really nice to hear after you know you see so much bad press. So so thanks for sharing that with us. You mentioned the MBE. It's not something everyone gets. You know, as as a colonial, I love hearing all these stories. So can you tell us about the MBE? What was it awarded for? Tell us about how you heard about it, the day of when it was awarded and so forth. Can you just run us through that? Yeah, if you go back, I've, I've always been a believer in partnership and the stuff I'm doing, I'm privileged to be doing recently with London Resilience Partnership is the key and I, you know, government sees that now. No no institution, no organisation could survive alone. We've got to partner, we've got to trust, we've got to respect, we've got to work together. One of the things I always wanted to do as a policeman, and when I first went to JP Morgan was, and excuse me, some old-fashioned expressions here, I wanted the, like, on a Friday night when you have the night duty muster or roll call if you're in America, you know, the sergeant gives you, says, right, we're looking for vehicle ABC 123. We've had a series of burglaries. We think it's Don Randall doing his burglaries. Look for this. I wanted them to do the same to the private sector. Because, you know, private sector at nighttime or during daytime, there's more private sector security people in London than there is in policemen. And I really wanted that bridge to not, not come along and brief, but share stuff, you know, share stuff. And then following 9-11, another great man of this country, Sir David Vaness. Sir David and I sat to them together and, and, and I, it doesn't matter where we were, but we were amongst some colleagues of mutual thinking. And I said, David, why don't we, we got to harmonize this following 9-11. We, this was the, this was, we, we use that word segue again. This was a time to take an opportunity of working together. And David said, what's your plan? I said, well, look, if we can cross that barrier of, of sharing information, that's the first thing. The second thing is let's 
educate the private security sector more towards counterterrorism. You know, the ideology of bin Laden at that time, the methodology of bin Laden, the methodology of Irish terrorism. Let's let's take that quantum leap and share that stuff. And latterly, if we do get an incident, let's use those security guards safely to support any activity that may or may not occur, whether it be cordon support or whatever. And in fact, we call it cordon support. So in September 2003, we launched the concept. And in April 2004, Project Griffin was launched. And if your, your, your listeners care to Google Project Griffin, you'll see the history of Project Griffin. And that was the partnership. And it built and built and built. And of course, on 7-7, 21-7, you know, June 18, all of those, all those events, Project Griffin has been seen. And my MBE was awarded for my, my service to the community for public-private partnerships in security, fundamentally Project Griffin, um, which actually became across the world. And although two quick stories, one is a story of how I come I know about it, and the second one is a story of Project Shield in uh, New York is actually Project Griffin. The then commissioner of the city and myself were in the commissioner of the New York police, Ray Kelly's office, and we were talking about Project Griffin. And Ray Kelly said, I like it, I like it, I really like it, I'm going to do it. (laughs) He says, but um, I'm going to say I invented it and I'm going to change the name. I said, said, Ray, that's fine by me, just do it. It's the right thing to do. And at the end of the meeting, Ray said up, he said, there's a pair of commissioner's cufflinks for you, Don. It's been a great pleasure to meet you. I said, but Ray, we've never met. You said, I've never been here. This is your idea. And he just laughed. He said, enjoy the cufflinks. And, and Shield is actually a derivative of Project Griffin. And in Australia, it's called Sharp Eye. In India, it was called um, Guardian. And in Singapore, it's got a name. So it took an international perspective, and that's what I got the MBE for. But how do we do it? I was actually at JP Morgan in November 2006, and I'm talking to my wife, Angie, and she said, you've got a letter from the uh, Prime Minister. And she starts reading this letter, which is confidential. People will tell the story. I mean, basically, they write to you, and basically the Prime says, you know, I'm – I am requested by Her Majesty to, who is considering honouring you with the member of the British Empire. This is confidential, not to be discussed. And as Angie's reading out this letter, you know, and there's only two people in life make me cry instantly, and one was my mum and one was my wife. If she cries, I cry. And, you know, it's got a very soft side to me if you get to know me well enough. And, and Angie's crying as she's reading this letter from the Prime Minister, Tony Blair at the time, of course. And I said, are you going to get to the end? <laughs> And where was and where was that bestowed upon you? Do you go and and receive that medal, or how does that work? I mean, you're it's at the palace, Buckingham Palace, and in fact, you you don't know if you're going to get the Queen or one of the other royals. But the flag was flying, so we got the Queen, and you, you queue up. I mean, it's so. I mean, you're treated with so much respect because you're being honoured by your country. You know, obviously, the knights and the dames go first, and you're in a queue. And if something happened, if one, if someone fell ill, nothing would happen, and and, you know, you'll get told, um, you know, the equity tells you what to do and tell and left, Majesty will talk to you. And I think I got modestly told off by the Queen because, you know, she she's very well informed, knew exactly what I'd done. And I think I said, because you, you're emotionally overwhelmed, you're meeting the Queen, you're being honoured by your country. You've got to remember what you've got to do. When she shakes your hand, she tells you to go and you've got to turn around. I think I said, yes, we, we must do, do something to defeat this war of terrorism. And she said, Mr. Ramla, I don't think war is the right word. I went, Your Majesty, okay. 
And uh, so I got a mild, a mild rebuke from Her Majesty for using the word war. Fantastic. Yeah, amazing day, amazing day. Look, we're coming up to the end of our, our time, and, and, and I always like to finish the end of our time with a quick fire three, if I may. Yep. And to start with, I, I really like to know, and I like to ask this from people, what do you wish you knew when you first started your career that you do now? I think a greater understanding and compromise. I think a bigger understanding of global issues and cultural issues and different opinions. Policing back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s was pretty directive. And I wish that, yeah, the, the knowledge I've got now, if, if we could implant that understanding, compromise and better appreciation of more elements, then I think that would be one of those things, Scott. I like that a lot, actually. I really do. That's that's a really good uh, good answer to something that I, I think a lot of people should really understand now. Compromise, culture, and appreciation of others, I think, is uh, quite pertinent, especially what we've gone through over the past 12 months as well. What, what's been the greatest innovation in your industry or in your life, you know, that's affected the way that we live now? I mean, you were talking about radios back when you were, when you were a police officer and, and surely the absolute innovation you've seen fighting security crime and cyber crime and fraud and money laundering and so forth within the banks. But what's been the greatest or the, the biggest innovation in your life or in the industry that, that, that's affected the way we live now? Yeah, I think, there are, I think there are, there's lots, but I think the primary three are science. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the DNA was a massive revolutionary step in investigations, historic and current and future, um, so science and all the elements of science. I mean, you know, the days of confessions of interviews are just are just supplementary, whereas back in the early 70s they were primary. Science yep. is the rule of investigation. So science is the biggest innovation and what pathologists and scientists do these days is phenomenal, you know, and, and whether you watch it on telly, which has got a degree of embellishment, but it's fantastic. <laughs> Second one is Technology, yeah. you know, the use of technology, I know it's got its ups and downs, but, you know, it makes the world a small place, it makes it a difficult place, but a small place. And the third one, which I think is massively important, is the partnerships on a global basis. You know, if you think back in my early days, we still had to do extradition warrants with Spain, yeah. all the all major criminals, and I pulled a few of them back from Marbella, yeah. where yeah. now, irrespective of the Brexit and everything else, we've got this global you know, reach, whether it be through Interpol, Europol, or just the fact of, of working together, you know, which has been a major step. So I think science, technology, and partnerships. That's that's fantastic. I love that. The last one for me, Don, and, and I'm really appreciative of your time. And great story. We could speak for hours. I know that. But what or who has been the greatest inspiration in your life? And I think I know the answer to this because you've mentioned her a lot throughout the um, throughout the podcast, and it's actually not that too dissimilar to me. So, who has been the greatest inspiration of your life? And do you have a mantra that you live by now? Okay, there's actually two. Yeah, clearly, Mum, who, who died when I was 24, she was 64, and that's why I talk about it. And the second and uh, important in a slightly different way is, is Angie, my wife, who. Yep. Because Angie brought an alternative stabilisation and viewpoint to my life, which which changed me um, at the age of what 50, 50 early fifties, mm-hmm. and so the two are those. The mantra I think is going back to what I just said earlier is is more appreciation, more understanding, and more compromise. I think. And someone said to me once, "I never turn anything down." And you would have seen that this week when you said, "Don, can you do a podcast?" And I said, yep. "What about this time?" Bang. It's easy to say, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it for you in the future, Scott. We say, yeah, come on, let's do it. Let's get it yeah. done. Yeah. My mantra is 
I will tackle anything as long as it's within my bandwidth of achieving. If I can't do it, I'll find somebody who can. I don't want to be like American Express, you know, we can do it if we can't do it. But if I can't do it myself, I will say, actually, I can't do that, but this person can. So, yes, compromise, understanding, respect, and a can-do attitude, even at, um, if I may say, at 70 years of age, you know, still can do, still want to do, and still will do. I can guarantee that because I see some of the stuff you do, Don, and you do it very, very well at 70 years old, believe me. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation this morning. And as I said to you, I also thoroughly enjoyed the time that we've spoken in the past. And, and I'm looking forward to very much spending uh, some time with you in a, in a wine bar or a, uh, a, a nice restaurant, hopefully in the, in the upcoming months as we, we get through this pandemic. Don, thanks again. Really interesting story, really inspiring story. And, and some, I, I think there's also another podcast probably a bit later on in 2021 that we can go deeper into the Craze and the Richardsons and some of the fun and games that happened and also uh, learning a little bit more about the fraud and, and, and security and money laundering stories, which I'm sure there are many of. So thanks again, Don. I really do appreciate your time today. No, it's my pleasure. And we never mentioned Ian and Metcloud, but what we'll do, Scott, my, my, the, my location in the, city, in the City of London is Harry's Bar in Abchurch Yard. So let's put that in the diary when regulations allow us that you, Ian, who actually I find very inspirational, actually, and Vickers from uh, MacLeod, and the three of us, if not a couple more of my old colleagues, we might be under the rule of six, um, but we'll get an interesting six of us together, Scott, which you'll, uh, you'll hear a lot more stories. It's been my pleasure this morning, Scott. Th- thanks, Don, and, and we will go into that MacLeod story very, very shortly. As I said, I'm going to get uh, a podcast happening very soon of all the all the advisory board members of, of MacLeod, and we're going to have a joint uh, podcast of all of us to speak about. So that's going to be a very, very exciting time and one that I'm going to arrange over the next few months. Lovely. I look forward to it. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks, Don, for joining me in discussing life in the City of London Police and your move into the corporate world with JP Morgan, becoming the first CISO for the Bank of England and all the work that you did in developing Project Griffin and taking that around the world, which you were rightly honoured with an OBE. You know, Don's story shows us how our parents really do help shape our lives and how his mother's influence still resonates with him in what he does today. It's also a story about learning life lessons of patience, respect, and working with other people and cultures to make a better world in which to live in. And I think we also need to get Don on for another chat about the craze, the Richardsons, the the comings and goings of life in the City of London Police in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Be sure to join us again for another interesting and inspiring story on the Vanguard podcast.